Now, when we begin to think about the drama of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're, we stop to reflect upon it as historical outsiders. That is, we're standing 2,000 years after the event already took place, and we're looking back on it, we're reflecting upon it. We are historical outsiders to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to, you know, what we call Lent, which is the 40 days before Easter, and, and then uh, Passion Weekend, which is Friday, Good Friday, and, and uh, you know, Sunday, which is Easter Sunday morning, we stop and we think back on what happened, and uh, we reflect upon it, we draw conclusions, and and we, we draw out some insights for our lives and we kind of understand what it was that Jesus did on our behalf. But I don't think we actually stop to think about what it was like to be a disciple during that time. Because the disciples of Jesus Christ who actually walked with him through the drama of his death, burial, and resurrection, they did not have the benefit that we have of actually looking back and receiving an explanation. You know, a lot of times uh, when we talk about faith in Jesus Christ, we talk about the need for an explanation. There's so much that I don't understand. How can I come to faith in Christ when I don't understand? But we have to stop and recognize that the disciples were going through something with Jesus as it was taking place, unfolding in real time, and Jesus did not stop to explain every step of the way. Okay, now I'm going to be betrayed. All right, now they're, they're beating me, and the reason they're beating me is because of Isaiah 53, I was wounded for your transgression. He didn't stop to explain. It was just happening. And suddenly they were caught up in this drama and forced to play a role in it that they did not wish to play. Can you imagine on Passover night after the meal in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples that Jesus stops and takes bread and breaks it and says, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They're thinking, why are we remembering you? You're sitting right here. This doesn't make any sense. And what are you talking about your body broken for us? Your body isn't broken. You don't have a single broken bone in your body. You've never even broke the skin. I have never seen you sick or hurting or in pain. What are you talking about your body broken for us? And he's speaking in the past tense. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples had no idea what was happening. You ever gone to church on a Sunday in which they were celebrating uh, the, 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 what we call communion or the, Lord, the Lord's Supper and, and all of a sudden the little cracker comes around? You're like, what is this? Why am I taking it? Have you ever been frustrated because you didn't get an explanation? Well, you understand what the disciples felt on that night. Because he didn't give them any explanation. They just simp it simply happened. And, and as the events were unfolding before their very eyes, they were caught up in the midst of this drama. And they didn't know what was up and what was down, what was right and what was wrong. They were caught in the midst of a historical drama in which they didn't know whether they were on the right team or the wrong team. Have you ever been caught in a situation in which you were not sure what was right or what was wrong? You weren't sure if you were on the right side or the wrong side of things. And you just found yourself saying, well, only time will tell. Only time will tell if we've made the right decision here. Only, only time will tell. And that's where the disciples found themselves. And they were forced to play a role in this drama. Each and every one of them. Now, imagine it if you go back to the upper room with me and you see Jesus sitting there with his disciples. And after they partake of the Lord's Supper, after he gives them the body and blood, he says, by the way, I chose all 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. <laughs> now, if there's a thousand people in the room, you're not too worried. Because you're like, amongst a thousand people, there's got to be one devil up in here. I, matter of fact, I think I know who it is, too. 
You know, but when there's 12 of you in the room, you're like, I got a one in 12 chance of being that devil. And not only that, I mean, these are 12 of your closest friends. You've lived together. These are all individuals that you've known to be solid. You know, like when 12 apostles are in the room, I'm talking about disciples of Jesus who were called personally by him. I'm talking about he he put everybody else outside and took these 12 into the inner room and shared with them the deepest secrets of his heart. He says, one of y'all is a devil. And they're thinking, Lord, not me. No, Lord. And they're saying it, Lord, please tell me it's not me. Who is it? I got to know. It can't be me. You know, when the Lord tells you you're a devil, you're a devil. Even if you don't think you're a devil. And yeah, you're just a devil. And you think, well, why am I a devil? What did I do? What have I ever done? How? Is, how? And so they're saying, Lord, who is it? And he says, it's the one I give a piece of bread to. Now, I mean, can you just imagine that happening? You're thinking, if he hands the bread to me, I'm not taking it. <laughs> no, that's for him over there. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no, that's ain't it for me. And he goes, here, Judas. And the other 11 are thinking, oh, thank God. Oh, whew, that was close. I thought it was me. Thank God he's the devil and not me. Thank God he's the betrayer and not me. Thank God he is the defector and not me. Thank God I'm still a disciple. Thank God that that guy is going to betray Jesus. Thank God he is the hypocrite and not me. Because the one thing I can't stand is having hypocrites up in the church. You see, and so I just think the Lord should point out them hypocrites and get them up out of the church. Because that's why I don't go to church. See, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. And when I become a Christian, I'm going to do it right. Not like them hypocrites, you know, who go to church and act like they're saved. But then after church, they act like they're not saved. You know what I'm talking about? I can't stand those people. I thought he was saying I was one of them. But thank God I'm not. Whoo, hallelujah. The, the other 11 after Jesus said to Judas, whatever you do, do it that quickly. And he bounced up out of there. The other 11 was like, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Now that we've got that over with, the disciples decided to have a discussion about who was the greatest in the kingdom. This is all in Luke chapter 11. They decide to talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And, and, and they're arguing about, remember, Jesus sent them out to work miracles. All of them had worked miracles. They're like, well, I worked a bigger miracle than you worked. You know, I saw 28 blind people. Oh, yeah, well, I saw 29 blind people get healed and 30 deaf ears. Okay, you can't top. And Peter says, well, listen, all y'all need to shut up because I walked on water. And all of y'all punks just stayed in the boat. <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, but you sure sunk in that water, too. And finally, Jesus said, all of y'all shut up. He says, look, let's just lay it out here, okay? I'm getting ready to be betrayed, and all of you are going to depart from me. It got real quiet in there. No, Lord, the one who's going to betray you, that was Judas. He's already out of here. You already put him out. We already dealt with that. We're with you, Lord. They began one by one to say, we're with you. Jesus looks at Simon. Man, I would love to be a fly on the wall just to see the look on Simon's face. I mean, because, you know, after the fact, when it's over, you can laugh about it. I bet the disciples always gave him a hard time after this. But for that moment, it was the most terrifying moment of his life. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon. Now, hold on. Why are you repeating my name? Because, see, I know what that means. When my mama used to repeat my name, the strap was coming out. Can I get a witness? 
When my wife repeats my name, I know I messed up real bad. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but secondly, why are you calling me Simon? You already changed my name to Peter. Why are you calling me Simon? Hold on a second. Lord, you're, now you're contradicting yourself. Because see, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus took all of his disciples to a city called Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by this Greco-Roman pantheon. He says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some say you're Jeremiah. He says, well, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, his name is Simon, Simon the son of John. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I say that you're Peter. You're no longer Simon. Simon is the old guy. Simon is the fisherman. Simon is the guy who lived according to his old life. You remember when I first met you, Simon, you were on the boat and I climbed in the boat with you and said, why don't you push off for a catch of fish? And, I, and you said to me, I've fished all night and I've caught no fish. And I said, try it one more time. And so you pushed out into the deep. And just as you were about to throw the net out, I said, stop and throw it on the other side. And when you threw that net out, I whistled and every fish in that lake jumped into your net. Do you remember that, Simon? He says, yeah. And at that moment, I fell on my knees and said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Why? Because I knew that if you knew where the fish were in that lake, you knew where the sin was in my heart. And I didn't want you to waste your time on me. You remember what I said to you, Simon? I said, Simon, don't be afraid. Yeah, I know you're a sinful man. Matter of fact, I know it more deeply than you know it. See, you're only aware of a certain amount of your sin. But I know the sin that's underneath the sin that's underneath the sin that's underneath the sin. I know the sin that you can't see. It's buried so deep you don't even know it's there. I, if I were to go on an excavation journey, I, I would find sin so deep in your heart. that, it, And if you saw it, it would gross you. You would throw up. You would vomit. You would run and just start vomiting if you saw how really filthy and wicked you are. But I'm not a, afraid of that, Simon. I know that and I still want you. And matter of fact, I'm telling you that if you follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to take responsibility for that deep-seated sin in your life that you don't know how to get out of. Just come follow me. But on that day when he confessed Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus changed his name. You're no longer that guy, Simon. That old man that was growing corrupt in his trespasses and sins. That old man that didn't know anything better than to, to rebel. That You know that guy that was always saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. The guy that Jesus wanted to slap half the time. Because he was always messing up and saying stupid stuff, ignorant stuff. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and, and he sees Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah and he goes, It's good for us to be here, Lord. Let's make three churches, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God the Father manifested in a cloud and said, Peter, shut up. And nobody asked you to say anything. But that guy was Simon. Simon's the old guy who was a fisherman. Peter is the new man created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Peter is the guy that I called out of darkness and into my glorious light. Simon walks in darkness, but Peter walks in the light. And I, I say that you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because Peter is a man of faith. Simon is a doubter. Sometimes he called him Simon Peter. Half and half. 
little bit of faith and a little bit of unbelief. You know, he was Peter when he jumped out of the boat and started walking on water. And then he looked up and saw the waves and Simon jumped out and he started sinking. And Jesus had to come pull him up and him and Peter walked back to the boat. But here Jesus says, Simon, Simon. At the end, and he says, wait a minute. What do you mean, Simon, Simon? I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I'm not Simon. He says, no, 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 no. Right now you're Simon. You just don't know it. No, no, I left Simon behind a long time ago, but there comes a time and a place when the Simon you think you left behind raises his ugly head again. And you don't know it. You didn't see it coming. You had no idea you would react that way in that situation. All of a sudden, here comes Simon. What are you doing alive? I thought you were dead. I thought I killed you. Simon, Simon. And he repeats it. Simon, Simon. Meaning you really are Simon. And then he says this, he says, Simon, Satan has desired you. Simon, Satan has desired you. That word desired in the Greek has three connotations. To desire or want, to ask or request, or to demand. Satan has desired you. He wants you, Simon. Satan has requested you. He has asked for you, Simon. Satan has demanded you. Satan has come to lay claim to you, Simon. And the background of this is in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, the scripture said that the sons of God, meaning the angelic beings, had come before the throne of God to give an account. And Satan came as well into the throne of God. You never knew Satan had any access to the throne of God. Let me tell you something. There's certain things Satan can't do unless he asks God for permission first. And that's even more terrifying because do you realize that Satan goes before the throne of God to ask permission to afflict you and sometimes God says yes. Satan, where have you been? He says, I've been going to and fro the earth. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? God says this. Have you considered my servant Job? Think about it. God says to Satan, did you ever think about afflicting my servant Job? If you haven't, you should. There's none like him in the earth. He's blameless in all of his ways. And Satan says, sure, he's blameless. You've been a hedge around him. You've blessed him and prospered him. You've given him everything he's asked for. He never prayed a prayer that was not answered. He never tried something that didn't work. Everything that he puts his finger to turns to gold. Well, of course, he is blameless and upright. He's never been tested. And God says, great, go ahead and test him. Just don't touch his body. And Satan afflicts that man in ways that terrify us when we read the book of Job. Matter of fact, we stay away from the book of Job for fear that some of us might, some of that might rub off on us. <laughs> and then Satan comes back and asks permission to touch his body. And God says, yes. So when Jesus says to Simon, Satan has desired you, Simon gets all afraid. What you talk? No. I'm not going out like Job. Don't be pulling no Job on me. I always thought it was the book of Job. I need a job. (laughs) Satan has asked for you. That he might thresh you. That he might sift you as wheat. Satan has desired you. That he might sift you as wheat. Satan wants to sift you, Peter. Satan wants to sift you. And then he says, but I have prayed for you. Translation. Satan wants to sift you. And God says, yes. 
but I have prayed for you. The implication is that Satan came before God and said, let me sift him. And God says, sure, go ahead. Now we got to stop there for a second because there is a plural in the Greek that is not readily apparent in the English. Satan has desired you, and in the Greek, the word is a plural you. Now, in the English language, we don't have a plural you, so we created one in the ghetto. It's the word y'all. <laughs> Satan has desired y'all. Watch this. Simon, Simon. Satan has desired y'all. That he might sift y'all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular. That your faith fail not. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. Do you see what he is saying to Simon? Simon, you're the open door. Satan wants to sift all y'all. But it starts with him right there. Satan knows that if he sifts you, he can sift them. And that's why he's coming after you, Simon. You've got to wake up and recognize that the attack of the devil against you is on their behalf, not on your own behalf. And so that's why I prayed for you. Why? Because if your faith fails not, their faith will fail not. You see, there's a whole community that's watching how you handle trial. There is a whole group of people that are under your influence and they're watching you walk through the trials and tribulations of your life. And if your faith fails not, you have no idea the degree to which you've strengthened them. He wants to sift you. What does it mean to sift? I know when, when, I, when I say sifter, when I speak of the sifter or a sifter, you're thinking about sifting some flour. You know, you got that little sifter and you pour the flour in the top and you pull the trigger and it just comes out under the bottom. And I never understood what that was all about. It's flour when you put it in and it's flour when it comes out. I don't know. I know Kevin's looking at me like I'm crazy, but it's a different texture of flour. What does it do, Kevin? All right, there you go. Yeah, it breaks down the molecules and it sets. <laughs> Kevin's going to give me a, a real breakdown of it. But you know, you know what a sifter was in, in, in the days of Jesus? You know what it meant to sift wheat? It was a two-part process. The first part of it was called threshing. Jesus says Satan wants to thresh you, first of all. And the second part of it was called winnowing. Satan wants to winnow you. Threshing. And winnowing. Now to thresh wheat, you had to understand that when you harvest the wheat, the head of grain is always encased in a hard shell, a husk, called the chaff. And the point of sifting was to separate the head of grain from the chaff. To get rid of the chaff so that the head of grain remains. And so the first part is threshing. What they would do is take these heads of grain and lay them out on a stone surface and then take something called a flail and beat the tar out of that grain. Bam! Bam! I mean, they just beat that grain. And what the beating would do is break the husk. That's threshing. The husk has to be broken before it can be removed. The second part was winnowing. Now they would take the grain with the broken husks and throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow 
And the husk would blow away. The chaff would blow away. And the wheat would fall back to the ground. And they would throw it up and throw it up and throw it up until all of the husk was blown away. The husk represents the flesh. And the grain represents your faith. The husk represents the flesh. And the grain represents your faith. Now, faith and flesh are two realities that the lives of every human being are filtered through. And when one is strong, the other is weak. And when one is weak, the other is strong. The stronger your flesh gets, the weaker your faith gets. And the stronger your faith gets, the weaker your flesh gets. And there has to come a point in which your faith and your flesh come into mortal combat. So that one of them can die. There has to come a place where your faith and your flesh fight to the death. And one of them gets broken and is removed. And the other gets strengthened and remains. And so God and Satan want the same thing. But for different reasons. They both want to sift us. The difference is Satan wants to sift out the head of grain and leave the husk. And God wants to sift out the husk and leave the grain. Satan wants to sift out your faith and leave your flesh. And God wants to sift out your flesh and leave your faith. And so often when Satan comes and says, let me sift him, God says, good, you'll do some of my work for me. You see, God uses Satan for his purpose sometimes. But it always, if God allows Satan to do the hard work, but he never allows Satan's purpose to come to pass. He works his own purpose through it. So he says, go ahead and sift Job. In the end, I'm going to make sure that his faith emerges as as true as gold and that his flesh is sifted out. And in the end, I'm going to reward him. You see, Satan wants to sift you so he can destroy you, but God wants to sift you so he can reward you. So, 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 Simon, you need to understand. Satan has asked to sift you. And the father said, yes. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I've prayed for you that even when you are threshed beyond your ability to endure, your faith won't break. Your flesh will. Your faith will fail not. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. And Peter goes, hold on a Simon. He goes, hold on a second. Returned. Lord, I'm not going nowhere. Return. You're ta- Jesus, you're talking crazy. You're talking like I'm getting ready to leave you. He says, let me tell you something. I ain't no Judas, okay? I'm not going out like Judas. Everyone could leave you and I'm not going anywhere. Everyone could turn. I don't care if all of these, see all these other 10 decide, you got 10 left. All of them could be fake and I ain't never going to be fake. All of them could turn their back on you. I will never turn my back on you. He says, I am ready not only to go to prison with you, but to death. I'm ready to die. I'm gangster like that for Jesus. I'm ready to die. And Jesus says, Peter, oh, 
Now I'm talking to Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. I'm calling you, Peter, because I know that you're still the rock. I'm calling you, Peter, because I haven't changed my mind about the fact that I changed your name. I'm calling you, Peter, because I know who you really are. I'm calling you, Peter, to let you know that even though I know you're going to fail, I'm making a distinction between what you're about to do and who you are. Because even though I know you're about to mess up, I'm telling you you're not a mess up. You're still Peter. Even though I know that you're going to fail, I'm telling you your faith is not going to fail. You're still Peter, and I haven't changed my mind that upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because I know your weakness, Peter. And I also know that you have such an important ministry ahead of you. I know that in about 50 days, you're going to stand before a crowd of people and proclaim the first message, and 3,000 people are going to hear your words and come to faith in me. I know the miracles you're going to work. I know you've got an important ministry ahead of you, but there's some flesh that is embedded so deep down in your heart that the only way for me to get rid of it is to allow it to raise up its ugly head. And so, yes, you're going to go through this, Peter, but it doesn't change who you are. Think about it. Jesus says, Peter, you're getting ready to fail. And it wasn't a warning. It wasn't, Peter, please don't do this. Peter, I see where you're headed in about eight hours. Please don't do this. Pray, Peter, so that you don't do this. Please, Peter, make sure you don't. He he wasn't warning him. He was telling him it's going to happen. Peter was begging, please, no. And the Lord was saying, sorry, it's got to happen. It's going down. You're going to do it. Imagine how terrifying that is when the Lord prophesies over you that you're getting ready to fail. You, I mean, if you, if you gave me that word on a Sunday afternoon, I would renounce it in Jesus' name. Yeah. The Lord told me, you're going to cheat on your wife. Like, I renounce that in Jesus' name. I break that and I cast that back to the pit from which it came. What if the Lord appeared to you in a vision and said, you're going to cheat on your wife next week? I'd be like, Lord, I renounce that in your name. I don't receive that. I'm going to go test that word. As the disciples watched the drama of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ unfold before their eyes, it was a crisis event the likes of which they had never encountered before. For us, it's a memory. For them, it was a sifter. It was a sifting experience. At that moment, their faith was being flailed. At that moment, they were laid on a stone surface and beaten and beaten and beaten. At that moment, the threshing process was constituted by the fact that when they saw him get betrayed and when they saw that he was heading towards death, it seemed to them as if everything that they had believed and everything that they had hoped for and everything that they thought about who he was had suddenly, catastrophically And ultimately, come to nothing. Have you ever walked through a season in which what you expected came to nothing? Have you ever walked through a season in which you prayed fervently for something and it came to nothing? Have you ever came to faith in something, such a fervent place of faith, where you were absolutely sure this is going down? And then it didn't go down. 
then you know what it's like to be a historical insider to the death of Christ. When our faith seems to fail, it's as if God died. It's as if he didn't hear us because I prayed and he didn't hear me and I called and he didn't answer me. I'll never forget the first time I went through it. I was 17 years old, first year student at Bible college, and I heard about a five-year-old little boy with leukemia who was dying. Our entire community was crying out to God day and night for that kid. I remember one night I prayed all night for his healing, Lord healing. And about 6 a.m., I just felt a witness in my spirit that he had been healed. I got a phone call about an hour later from a buddy of mine, and my friend said, did you hear about the little boy? I said, you ain't got to tell me. The Lord already told me. He said, really? I said, yeah. The Lord told me he's healed. He said, well, he went home to be with the Lord just a few hours ago. I felt so betrayed. God, why? What? Because you said, whatsoever things I ask in your name, that will you do. I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus said... Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there in the Christian world that want to exegete that passage to the point that it says the opposite of what it says. You know, people say stuff like, well, you've got to take that in context. You've got to look at the context of the whole counsel of Scripture. Yeah, so if you put it in context, it says the opposite? I mean, we got to deal with this. Jesus said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. I don't care how much you exegete that. It will never say anything other than that. So, Lord, how is it? Do you know how many times over the years I experienced that again and again? Because, see, if God hadn't promised, see, the thing is, I wouldn't have expected it if he hadn't promised it. You know, don't promise me something if you're not going to do it. Don't make empty promises. Somebody ever told you, I'm going to give you $1,000. I never would have expected $1,000 till you told me you were going to give me $1,000. But now that you told me, I expect it. You know how many times I stood by somebody's hospital bed, prayed in faith, laid my hands, felt so much faith that I knew they were going to jump up out of that bed and shout, hallelujah, I'm healed. Only to receive the report of their death a few hours after leaving the hospital. At a certain point, I thought I had an anointing of death. Like, don't call me to pray for your loved one. They'll be gone in a few hours. People who weren't even deathly ill are dying. They only had a cold, but after you prayed, they took a turn for the worse. Don't get me wrong. I saw a lot of answers to prayer too. But in comparison with the number of unanswered prayers. The majority of people that I've prayed for have not been healed. I experienced it recently. Just a month ago. Less than a month ago pastor in Oakland, wife became deathly ill with cancer. My heart broke for that family. I wanted so badly to go to the hospital and pray for her. He texted me on a Monday night, would you please come to the hospital and lay hands on my wife? When I got that message from him, I went into my closet. I mean my closet. You know, Jesus said, go into your prayer closet and close the door. I took that literally. I was in there with the clothes. Literally. 
I prayed all evening long. And I came to such a place of faith that I knew that the moment I walked into that hospital room, the glory of God was going to shine on her. I was going to lay my hands on her and she was going to get up. The next day, I drove out there to Stanford Hospital the whole way praying and interceding and believing. And I felt the power of God. By the time I got there, the power of God was so strong on my physical body that I was trembling under it. And I went in there and I laid my hands on her. But when I walked in the room, she was in such poor condition that I was slapped in the face with unbelief so hard that I nearly stumbled and fell to the floor. My faith tried to run out of the room. Have you ever been hit with unbelief so hard that your faith decided to run? I had to grab my faith by the throat and say, come back here. You're not going nowhere. My faith is trying to pull away from my hands. I'm out of here. I'm not big enough for this. Say, well, I don't care if you're the size of a mustard seed. You're not going anywhere. I'm not giving up on this. And I had to stand there and intercede until I came back to faith. And all of a sudden, faith and power came on me. And I laid my hands on her. And as surely as I'm standing here today, nothing happened. I went back four times that week. Nothing. 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 And every time I went back, I went with more faith. I went with more power. I went with more of a sense of God's presence. And when I got the call that Sunday afternoon that she had passed away, I was devastated. I thought, God, why? How? How is it possible? I'm believing for this. You just healed my brother-in-law. Only part of the testimony he left out was that we laid hands on him. Right before he went to the biopsy. I mean, I've seen people get healed. Why did you not heal this woman? I couldn't understand it. You know what? I sat in the car and cried. And I was hurting for that family, but I was also hurting for me. I was hurting for my faith because when you go through a disappointment like that, it's like, God, don't you want me to believe? I mean, God, you act like you don't want me to believe. You know, I mean, you, I, I mean, if, if I were, if I were God, I'd be helping my faith right now. Sometimes I feel like my faith is hanging on by a thread and God comes and cuts that thread. Are you kidding? Are you for real? Come on, throw me a bone here. Sifted. You're in the sifter. You're being threshed. And the thing about when you're being threshed and you're being beaten is that if you were that grain of wheat, it would feel like you're being beaten. If you were that grain of wheat looking up, seeing that flail come down on you again, bam, and again, bam, and again, you would think you were being beaten. The thing when you're being, fl- when you're being threshed is it feels like God is beating your faith. Yeah, yeah. But he's not. He's breaking the flesh. Jesus ended the meeting just like that. Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me. All right, we're done here. Let's go, guys.
let's go pray. Takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're so discouraged they can't even pray. Fell asleep during the prayer meeting. You know how frustrating it is to try to lead a prayer meeting when people are falling asleep? (laughs) Can you imagine being Jesus, knowing you're about to be betrayed in about 45 minutes and your disciples are sleeping? It said they were exhausted with sorrow. Suddenly, Jesus says, the hour has come. Soldiers enter the garden. Judas approaches Jesus, kisses him on the cheek. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Terror falls upon Judas and he runs away, weeping bitterly. The soldiers step forward and Peter's thinking, this is wrong. I got to do, I told him I would go, I told him I wouldn't go out like that. He grabs a sword, cuts off the ear of the servant, not the soldiers. Can you imagine Peter looking up, seeing these soldiers? He's got his little sword. Uh Uh-uh. Servant. Yeah. I got that slave. Yeah, that's right, because I'm a gangster. Jesus goes over and picks up that ear and puts it back on. Peter, put that thing away. Even my attempts to help Jesus seem to come to nothing. Even my attempts, see, because I'm constantly trying to help him. All I want to do is help him. I want to serve him. And even when I try to serve him, he reverses. I mean, Peter's thinking, I did some good. We got to fight for Jesus. And Jesus reverses what I did to try to help him. Peter has no idea what is going on. He's confused and he sees Jesus being carried off and he can extrapolate this forward and see where this is going. He knows it's going nowhere fast, but he's thinking, I got to follow because I told him that I wouldn't leave him. And so he follows down the hill and Jesus is taken into the court of Pontius Pilate. And while he's being questioned, Peter's outside trying to be inconspicuous, waiting for news. Hours goes by. It's the middle of the night. It's late. It's cold. Peter's tired. So he goes over to the fire and begins to warm his hands. The anxiety is so heavy that Peter can barely breathe. The confusion is so thick that Peter can barely think. What in the world is going on? Peter's thinking, I just want God to fix this. I just want us to go back to the way we were last week. Let's get him out of here and let's go work some more miracles Feed some more multitudes. Let's open some more blind eyes and some more deaf ears. I just want God to make this go away. And all of a sudden, Peter becomes self-conscious because he looks up and everybody there is looking at him. He's thinking, I'm next. One of the servant girls says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Peter says, no, no, man, no. No, I'm not one of his disciples. Sure you are. You don't look like him. Actually, that's what it meant to be a disciple back then. To be exactly like your teacher. If you had a rabbi and you walked with him for three years, by the end of that three years, you were exactly like your rabbi. I mean, same haircut 
same beard. If your rabbi had a beard, you grew one. And if you were Korean, you just did something. You figured, you tried to, you said. If you had to get a fake beard, you got one because you were going to look like your rabbi boy. You wore the same kind of clothes. I mean, the same brand names, everything. You had an exact replica of his closet. Same shoes, everything. And you spoke just like him. So are you his disciple? No, I'm not his disciple. Yeah, but even when you say you're not his disciple, you said it with his accent. You sounded exactly like him and said you're not like him. Peter's thinking, I better get up out of here. Goes to the other side of the courtyard, finds another fire, warming his hands. Takes a few deep breaths. The anxiety is mounting. Suddenly he looks up and sees everybody's looking at him again. Peter's thinking, maybe it's not good for me to be here. They might even mistake me for him. They might even attack me because of him. They might attack me thinking they're attacking him. They might say something negative about me thinking they're saying something negative about him. I've got to put a little bit of separation between me and him. And somebody says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, man. No. Trying to change his accent. No. No, dog. Trying to remember what his accent was like when he was growing up. Can't even sound like he used to sound anymore. Sounds fake when he tries to talk the way he used to talk. Of course you're one of his disciples. Look at your beard. It's, it's trimmed exactly the way his is. Just like that guy right there. It's exactly like that. Peter goes to the other side of the courtyard, trying to get away. And as soon as he looks up and every eye is on him, Peter is, his anxiety is off the charts and he begins to flood. They say, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Son of a, he starts cussing. How many mother freaking times do I got to tell you? Blankety, I am not. See, Peter's thinking if I say some expletives, then they'll know I'm not his disciple. Because I got to say some stuff that he would never say so that they know that I'm not with him. I'll prove that I'm not his disciple. And as the last expletive makes its way out of his mouth, cock a doodle doo. The rooster crows. And there was never another terrifying, there was never a more terrifying sound that Peter heard. In his life. And at that moment, Peter is standing there thinking, I am the most wretched human being to ever walk planet earth. And just as he turns back, his eyes and the Lord's eyes meet. And he sees in the Lord's eyes something that is actually not there. He sees disappointment. He hears the Lord say things that he's not saying. He hears the Lord say, I'm ashamed of you. Peter thinks I'm the most wretched and detestable man to ever walk planet earth. My God, what is wrong with me? What did I just do? How could I? 
I told myself I wouldn't do it. The moment he told me I would do it, I told myself I wouldn't do it. I told him. I said I wouldn't do it. I promised him I wouldn't do it. How could I have done that? And if he knew that I was going to do it, then why did he let me in that situation in the first place? He could have rescued me. He could have said, Peter, go away. Go to another city. You don't want to be here when this goes down because you're going to do something that you're going to regret. But he let me do it. Maybe he let me do it because he's done with me now. Maybe I've messed up for the last time. Maybe I've turned away for the last time. Maybe, maybe I've said the wrong thing for the last time. Maybe now he realizes that I'm one of those hypocrites. And there's nothing more terrifying for me than to think that I'm a hypocrite. Because that's the last thing I want to be is one of those hypocrites. I used to pray, God, I thank thee that I was not born a Gentile. I was not born a hypocrite. I thank you. But now all I can do is bow my face in shame and say, I'm not only a, a hypocrite, I'm the worst. He chose me. He walked with me for three years. How could I? He gave me grace that he never gave anybody else. He took me places he never took anybody else. He showed me things that he never showed anybody else. He said to me one day, blessed are your eyes which see what you see. Because many prophets and kings long to see what you see and hear what you hear. But they never saw it and they never heard it. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He told me I was the rock. How could I? Peter went away and wept. some of you in this room right now and there's stuff that's raising up its ugly head in your life and all you can do is accuse yourself and say what's wrong with me why can't I drop it and what you don't realize is that you're being threshed what you don't realize is that God is allowing you to walk through this because he wants to break the flesh off of you. God is allowing you to walk through this and he's allowing this thing to raise up its ugly head so he could cut it off. What you don't realize is that God has to let you walk through it so that he can take you out the other side of it. What you don't realize is that he knew you were going to do it and he knew you were going to walk in that place and he knew you were going to mess up, but he also knew what was on the other side of it. And Peter, if you would just stop for a second and remember that he said to you, when you return, you're going to strengthen your brothers because I know you're going to mess up, but I also know that you're going to return. You're being threshed. And when you're threshed and that flesh is broken, that's the most dangerous place because there comes a point in the threshing process when God is taking you to the end of your flesh, when he is ready to ultimately destroy it and remove it and eradicate it from your life, when the stuff that you feel like is clinging to you and you'll never get past it, God is ready to break it and take it away. God's ready to cast you up in the air and cause the wind of his spirit to blow it away. But that is the place where your faith is the weakest because you feel like you've failed and fallen the hardest. That is the place when everything feels like it's It's falling apart around you and the stuff has hit the fan. That is the place where you are most tempted to let go of your faith. 
Because in order to take you to the end of your flesh, He also has to take you to the end of your faith. He's got to take you to that place where your faith is within an inch of its life, where you feel like one more thing and my faith is dead. One more thing and I'll have absolutely no ability to believe. And you're struggling in your mind with thoughts that God doesn't care about me. It's at that very place where you've come to the end of your flesh. He takes you there to the very edge. But if you'll hold on to His hand, He won't let you fall off of that edge. But if you don't take his hand and you let go of that faith and a lot of people do it so broken when you talk to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ when you talk to people who have walked away from him they always tell you about a threshing experience. Why? Because I was in church and I was broken there. Why? Because I believed and I was hurt. Why? Because I believed and this person died. I believed and I was raped. I was molested. Why? Because I went through a period of such severe threshing that I made a decision at the end of it, I'm not going to walk with him anymore. And it was a decision. And I'm telling you, some of you are right at that place where you're coming to the end of both your flesh and your faith. And I'm saying that I'm praying for you that your faith fail not. That you make a decision in the midst of it. I'm going to hold on to faith and a good conscience. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. Sometimes you've got to fight to believe. Sometimes believing is easy, but sometimes you've got to fight to believe. And if you let go of that faith, all that's left... Is broken flesh. No faith. But broken flesh. And that is the most miserable place to live. It's the worst place to live. I mean at least if you're going to walk in the flesh. Make sure you walk in the flesh while the flesh is strong. Because the flesh is about self-dependence. And if you're going to depend on yourself. Yourself better be pretty strong. But I mean, if your your flesh, if yourself is in shambles, broken up in pieces, and you say, "This is what I'm depending on," this pile of rubble, this broken down, busted, broke, busted, disgusted pile of, of failure, this is what I'm depending on. This this broken up piece of this just shards, the shards of my former life. Listen, if you're going to trust the flesh, you better have some strong flesh. I got at least a little respect for you then. Worst thing to be is a backslider. Most miserable. It's the most wretched. It's better not to have ever believed. Why? Because nothing will ever satisfy you. Once you have tasted of the spring of living water. And once you've tasted, it's too late. You can't go back and untaste it. You say, well, I don't believe anymore. Well, actually, you do. I mean, you know it's true. You can make a decision not to trust anymore, but you can't make a decision not to believe in the reality of it anymore. That's like saying, I don't believe my brother exists anymore, even though I grew up with him. And I just talked to him yesterday. <laughs> you know why there's so many backsliders in the body of Christ? Because we went through the flailing. 
But we thought God wanted to destroy us. And we thought he had abandoned us and turned his back on us. You say, well, I'm afraid to get involved in the church. Why? Because I was so hurt in my last church. I'm afraid to serve the Lord. Why? I was so hurt last time I served the Lord. I'm afraid to really walk close with Jesus. Why? Because every time I try to walk close with Jesus, I get hurt. Let me tell you something. It's all about the threshing process. But if you go through the threshing process and let God break your flesh down, he'll take you into the winnowing process where he casts you up into the wind of the Spirit of God. And there's nothing better. Just as there's nothing worse than the threshing process, there's nothing better than that winnowing process when God takes you in his hand and casts you up into the wind and the wind of the Spirit begins to blow away stuff that you could spend the rest of your life trying to pick off of your life. Peter thought it was over for him. The day after Jesus was put in the grave, he went to his, to his other buddies, fellow disciples. He said, I'm going fishing. you got to understand that fishing was not just a hobby for Peter. It was a lifestyle. That when Jesus came and called him, he was fishing. And he called him to leave his nets behind. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, what he meant was, I'm going back to that old life. And by the way, don't call me that Peter anymore. My name is Simon. I'm going fishing. The funny thing is, that night he fished all night long and caught no fish. Suddenly the old life doesn't work anymore. The old sources of fulfillment don't work anymore. I heard a testimony last night, Pastor Ryan Longfield of the Ark. He shared his testimony about how he was out partying. He was in college. He had gone to the University of Colorado to go party. And he said he was getting drunk and sleeping with women and, and partying and out on the dance floor. He said one night in the middle of one of his parties, he grabbed his cup and filled it. He was going out to the dance floor. And on his way to the dance floor, the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, you're just trying to mask your insecurities with alcohol. And you're just trying to prove you're a man with women. And he said, once I heard that from the Lord, it kind of ruined the experience for me. He said, I just kind of walked off the dance floor and put the cup down. He said, I tried several times after that to go to parties. But every time I'd start walking out to the dance floor, I would be like, I'm just trying to mask my insecurities with alcohol. He said, and he'd be talking to a girl and trying to get her number. And then he'd be like. I'm just trying to prove I'm a man. And he said it ruined all of it for him. That's what it means that the truth will set you free. He said a few weeks later he packed up and moved back to California because every reason why he had moved to Colorado was ruined for him. And he would come home and sit at the table with his mom and they would study the scriptures together. And he said a couple nights into it, his mother opened up to Psalm 139. And he looked at that Bible and saw his name written all over that psalm. His mother had been praying that psalm over. You know why? Because she knew that he was being threshed. The morning came and Peter had caught nothing. And the Lord stands on the shore. Peter doesn't recognize him. He shouts, little children. Do you have any fish? Peter shouts, fished all night and caught nothing. He says, really? Throw your nets out on the other side. See what Jesus is doing? Taking him back to the beginning. 
taking him back to the moment he first met him. Some of you are here and God wants to take you back to the beginning today. Take you back to the place where you first met him. He's going to start doing stuff in your life that he used to do. You know, that kind of stuff where you used to flip open the Bible and there's a word from the Lord. And all of a sudden you left that season. That doesn't work for you anymore. God's going to take you back to the place where stuff is going to work. Why? Because he wants to reconfirm his love for you. And he wants to show you. He wants to confirm the fact that his calling on your life is still there. Throw your nets out on the other side. And he throws his nets out. And the man on the shore whistles. And every fish in that lake jump into that net again. To the point where the nets broke. And Peter knew it's the Lord. He jumped out of that boat. He ran to the shore. And when he got there, Jesus already had some fish on the fire. Isn't it interesting that Jesus could catch fish without a net, without a boat? Without a... I need three fish to come out of that lake and jump in that fire right now. They just come jumping. <laughs> Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter, I got another question for you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, I got one last question for you. This one's for all the money. If you need to buy a vow, go ahead. Ask the audience. Here it is. You ready? I'm ready. Do you love me? And the scripture said that Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, Do you love me? Do you know why he was grieved? Not grieved in the sense of irritated. Like, why are you asking me the same question again? Like when a, when a wife asks her husband too much, do you love me? <laughs> yeah, I love you. Of course I love you. <laughs> Loved you for 45 years. That's what it been, you know. That's not my wife. You know. My wife don't ask me. I say, baby, I love you. My wife goes, thanks. But actions speak louder than words, so go do our taxes. <laughs> Peter was grieved. You know why he was grieved? Because he was expecting the Lord to say, no, you don't. You don't love me. What are you talking about? You love me. Three nights ago, you told me that you would go to prison and death with me. And eight hours later, you were telling people you didn't know me. She's talking about you love me. You don't love me. (laughs) Peter was half expecting Jesus to send him away and say, you know what you turned out to be? A Judas. How can I trust you when you say you love me? Your words mean nothing to me. But Jesus wasn't saying that at all, was he? He said this, Peter. When you were young, you put on your own clothes and went where you wanted to go. When you're old, somebody else is going to put on your clothes for you and take you where you don't want to go. I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say. It's like Jesus just told him how he's going to die. And John said it. 
By saying this, Jesus indicated what death Peter would die and glorify God. But let me tell you why that was music to Peter's ears. Because two nights ago, he said, I'm ready to go to death with you. And Jesus said, no, you're not. And now Jesus, uh, Peter's saying, I don't know if I'm ready to go to death with you. And Jesus is saying, yes, you are. Now you're ready to go to death with me. Now, you know what I just did over the last three days? I sifted out your flesh. I sifted out that unbelief. I sifted out that part of you that was ready to reject me and walk away. I sifted out that place in your heart where you didn't think any of it was real. You thought I allowed you to be damaged. No, I set you free. That's what the sifting process is about. You thought that your faith was broken by that experience. I'm telling you, your faith was mended by it. I'm telling you, God is using that threshing process, that sifting process to strengthen your faith, to take you back to that place where all of a sudden you're at a higher place of faith and expectation than you've ever been before in your life. You're in the sifter right now. You're in the sifter. I'm telling you, you're in the sifter. And I know many of you right now are in the sifter. You came out of the sifter and into the service. And many of you come here week after week and you you stand in this place and you lift up your hands and you try to forget that you're in the sifter. Some of you are gripped by the contradiction that this is Resurrection Sunday. We're here to celebrate Jesus' victory. But how can I celebrate Jesus' victory in the midst of my personal defeat? Something fell apart in your life this week. You're here mourning the death just as the disciples were grieving the death of Jesus, their own Lord and Savior. Many of you here today, you're mourning a death of something, a death of an expectation, a death. Something died that you thought would live. Something fell apart that you thought would come together. Something dissolved that you thought would grow. Something is barren that you thought would be fruitful, something, some endeavor, something that, something that you poured out your hope and expectation on, it came to nothing. And I'm telling you, it's because you're in the sifter. You're in the sifter. You're in the sifter. You're in the sifter. God is sifting you, but not to break you, but to free you. He's not beating you. He's beating down your unbelief. He's not beating you. He's breaking your flesh. He's cracking open that shell of the flesh because you can't go anywhere as long as you're encased in that casing of flesh. He sees what's ahead of you. And he says, I got to let you walk through this now. Because unless I let you walk through this now, you're going to carry this with you for years. Unless I let you walk through this now, it's going to come up again and again and again and again and again. Ten years from now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, you're still going to be dealing with this stuff. And I can't let that happen to you. You're too important. You're too important. And there's a whole community around you that's watching you. Satan has desired y'all. He's asked for y'all. But I'm only talking to you, Simon. I'm only talking to you, Simon. Satan has desired y'all. He's desired all of your brothers and sisters. He's desired everyone who's watching you. They're watching you to see what you do with your flesh and your faith. But I've prayed for you. I know you're being threshed, but I've prayed for you. And actually, that's all I can do right now is pray for you. I can't jump into the sifter at the same moment in the same place you're in it. But I can be in the sifter with you. Because the thing we need to understand is that when Peter was in the sifter, Jesus was in the sifter. Do you know what his betrayal and crucifixion was? It was the sifter. That's why he said, Simon, don't worry, because I'm going to be in the sifter with you. When, Simon, you feel like your faith is being beaten, let me tell you something. My physical body is being beaten. 
You think your flesh is being broken. Let me tell you, my physical flesh is being broken. He allowed his physical flesh to be broken so that we might endure when our sin nature flesh is broken. That inner flesh, that sin nature, that that law of self-dependency. Says, Peter, I know you're in the sifter, so am I. Look at me, Peter. But I don't want you to worry, Peter, because I knew you would fail in the sifter. That's why I jumped in the sifter with you. And let them nail my hands and feet to the cross. Because where you failed in the sifter, I became faithful in the sifter on your behalf. And even your failure in the sifter was nailed to me. You say, where was God when I was being marked, when I was being hurt, when I was being broken, when I was being beaten? Where was God when I was betrayed and left alone? Where was God when I cried alone at night, when everything seemed to come crashing around me? Let me tell you where God was. He was on the cross. He was on the cross. He was in the sifter with you. He was on the cross. And if you could see him, he would show you the nail prints in his hands and in his feet and say, see, this is the sign that I was in the sifter with you. This is the mark of the sifter. When you were broken, I was broken. And in fact, I was bruised for your iniquities. I was beaten for your transgressions. The chastisement of your peace was upon me. And it's by my wounds you are healed. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You know why I live? Because he went through the sifter, but his faith failed not. He kept believing. He was rejected and despised of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But even in the midst of his darkest moment, he knew that God was in him reconciling the world to himself and not counting men's sins. He knew that even though he knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore the curse of the law on our behalf. I'm telling you, Jesus went through the sifter with you and there is no sifter so deep that Jesus is not there. I'm telling you, The sifter of the cross was greater than the sifter of your trial. It's greater than the sifter of your pain. It's deeper than the sifter of your disappointment. You want to know disappointment? Look at God dying on the cross. The one who spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. You want to talk about disappointing? It's disappointing to be God and die. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This doesn't make any sense. When he breathed his last and gave up the ghost, the very earth began to protest. Thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and shaking. The earth was in protest. Our creator can't die. You know why he did it? He said, I see that you're going to be in the sifter. I got to get in there with you. I see that you're going to be flailed. You're going to be threshed. And you're going to think that I'm, I'm trying to destroy your faith. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into that sifter with you. And you're going to watch me. Watch, just look at me. Just look at me. Look at me when they're beating me. When, when they weep for me, I say, woman, weep not for me, but for yourselves. Don't weep for me. When, when they hang me on the cross, I'm going to look down on them and say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's what I do in the sifter. 
Why? Because there's joy set before me. There's joy that is set before me and so I can endure the cross and despise its shame. (laughs) Hallelujah. There's joy that is set before me. That's why I can endure the cross and despise its shame. I know what's on the other side of this cross. And the scripture says that even as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so also we should walk in newness of life. It was there on the cross that he triumphed over powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them. It was there on the cross that he defeated death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I'm telling you, that moment when he was in the sifter, when it looked like his hopes and dreams were dashed, and came to nothing that was the most powerful moment in human history your time in the sifter is the most powerful time in your life you might feel that you're coming within an inch of your faith and that your faith is about to die but you're going to look back on it and say that was the most powerful time in my life That was the season in which God broke stuff off of my life that I never thought would break. That was the season in which I learned to believe. I thought my faith was being destroyed and that I wouldn't be able to believe anymore. But I came out of it believing more fervently than I ever believed in my life. Why? Because I made a decision. My faith is going to fail not. And I'm not just talking to Christians. You might be here in this room right now and you don't even know Jesus Christ. I'm talking to you too. You know why I'm talking to you? Because the scripture says that God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. You've got a measure of faith. Even if it's a little tiny measure of faith, it's enough to make a decision about Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. Even if you decide to reject Jesus Christ, it takes some faith to reject Jesus. It takes a lot of faith. You have to fervently believe that he is not who he said he was. That he did not do what he said he did. That he will not do what he says he's going to do. You have to believe fervently that he is not seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that he is not coming to judge the quick and the dead. And that takes some faith. But with that same faith, you can make a decision to trust Jesus. And typically what I find is that the difference between whether people trust Jesus or not. has to do with the decision they made in the sifter. What are you going to decide in the sifter? Bow your heads. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is coming heavy on this house. I just sense your spirit resting on hearts and Scripture says that your word is like a hammer that dashes rocks to pieces. And God, I thank you that right now your word is coming like a hammer. You're breaking hardness of heart. And today you're reaching for backsliders. Because when we're talking about the American church, we're talking about a group of people that get saved over and over and over again. And even American unbelievers are simply unbelievers because they've heard the gospel a thousand times and never really got serious about it. I don't believe there's one person in this room who has never heard the gospel. But I believe there's some folks in this room who never got serious about it. Today I'm challenging you to make a decision, but specifically I'm speaking to the backslider. God said he's married to the backslider. There's some folks in this room that walked with him 
But like Peter, you turned and walked away because you failed. And when you failed, you thought, I messed up. I might as well go. I turned into one of those hypocrites. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I guess I might as well walk away. I might as well not pretend to be the thing when I'm not. And so you went back fishing. But what you don't know is that the Lord is not looking at you as a hypocrite. He still sees you as Peter. He knows you're acting like Simon, but he still calls you Peter because he knows that underneath all of that, you're the rock. You say, but I messed up. You know, when Peter said, I'm the most despicable man that has ever walked the earth. There were some of you in this room that there was such a witness in your heart. You're like, that's how I feel. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is standing on the shore. He's standing on the shore and he's saying, I'm here to restore you. I'm here to restore you. I'm here to reverse. You know why Jesus had Peter say, I love you three times? Because he said, two nights ago, you denied me three times. And I'm giving you the opportunity to confess me three times. You're going to reverse every one of those denials with an I love you. All the while Peter was saying it, he was afraid deep down in his heart. But maybe I don't. And Jesus was saying, go ahead and say it, Peter. Say it and I'll give power to it. Say it and I'll make it real. Say it and I'll confirm it. And there's some of you here right now. You've gone back to fishing, but God says now it's time to come home. I'm bringing you back to myself. It's time for you to come back and it's time for you to come back and strengthen your brothers. It's time. You have been like sheep that have gone astray, but now it's time to return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Why? Because he wants you. He still wants you. He still loves you. He still believes in you. He knew you would do it. He knew you would fail, but he doesn't see you as a failure. He knew you would mess up. He allowed it to happen. Why? To take you through it and to break it off of your life for good. But God says, if you turn to me now, it's time. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. I'm speaking to the backslider today. You say, I knew him. You might even say in some way, I know him because I know who he is. But you say, I'm not walking with him. I've turned away and I'm ready. I'm ready to turn back right now. I'm asking you to lift your hand right now. Lift your hand right now. I see that hand right there. Somebody else. Somebody else. I know the spirit of the Lord is moving on hearts right now. I know the spirit of the Lord. Some of you, the spirit of God's moving on you so strong and you are resisting. You are resisting the spirit of God. Let me tell you, it's his grace that's reaching for you right now. It's his grace. It's his grace. I see that hand right there. Yes. Somebody else, you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to return to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. I'm ready. I was once like a sheep going astray, but now I'm returning to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. You say, I'm ready now. I'm ready to confess him. I'm not going to be like Peter in the courtyard and deny him. Now I'm going to confess him. I'm going to reverse those I don't know hymns with an I love you. Come on, it's time, it's time. The Spirit of the Lord has been reaching on your heart. I know you were disillusioned because you were in the sifter, but I'm telling you, choose faith in the sifter. Make a decision right now. I'm just going to give you another moment. One more person. One more. Yes, I see. Yes, I see that hand. Somebody else. Somebody else. I see. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Yes, I see that hand right there. Yes, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Yes, I see that hand right there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. There's faith in the sifter today. I'm saying there's faith in the sifter today. 
the spirit of God has come to the sifter. I know you're in the sifter, but he says, I'm with you. He says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I've come to break that flesh off of you. Now your faith is going to emerge pure as gold. This is what I'm going to do. Those of you that lifted your hand, I'm going to ask you to come stand up here at this altar right now. Say, why do you do that? Why do you want to embarrass people? Listen, I'm telling you, your Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, stripped naked before the world on your behalf. And he says that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Today, I'm giving you an opportunity to confess him publicly before men right now. Come to this altar right now. You that lifted your hands, come on up. Maybe there's some others. You say, I never made a public confession of faith. I'm ready to do it right now. I'm ready to do it right now. Come on. Come on. It's time. It's time. Come on. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about fear. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Look at this. That's good. That's good. Look at this. Unashamed. Come right over here. Come right over here. This is powerful. Come on, everybody stand up on your feet and lift up your hands and just begin to give God some glory. I need some prayer warriors to come to this altar right now. Some leaders, pastors. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me tell you something. Jesus just got on the loudspeaker in heaven and he made a public announcement. He said, I confess these individuals before my father. Come on. I confess you before my father. I confess you before my Father. Right now, right now, Father, let the Holy Spirit come and blow all that flesh away. Blow it away. Come on, all of you lift your hands. All of you lift your hands because so many of you are in the sifter. But the Spirit of God is coming to blow that flesh away. Come on, open up your mouths and just begin to worship. There's faith in the sifter today. Thank you, Lord. 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 Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, God. Mm. Thank you, Lord. I want everybody to repeat this prayer after me. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. I confess you as Lord. I confess you as Savior. I confess you as King. Jesus, my faith has been challenged. I thought it was broken. But Jesus, I thank you that you prayed for me. And my faith will fail not. Father, I believe your son Jesus died for my sins. He saved me. I receive salvation in his name. Jesus, meet me today. Come into my heart. Come into my soul. Teach me to walk with you and to never turn away. I ask it in your precious holy name. Amen. Now everybody stretch out your hands toward this altar and just pray one more moment. Father, fill to overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. To overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Fill with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just let the Holy Spirit come to overflow, to overflow, to overflow. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is coming right now. He's breaking it all off. All that shame is broken off your life right now. It has no place in your life from this day forward. No more shame. No more shame. No more shame. It's broken from over your life. It's broken from over your life. Feel, 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 feel. Come on, pray, church. Pray, church. 
to overflow, to overflow, to overflow with the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Fill right now. We give you the praise and glory for it. And we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Come on, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about public Christianity. They say in America that religion is a private thing. It's it's a personal thing. Let me tell you something. It's a public thing. We're going to walk with Jesus. We're going to believe. And your faith is going to fail not. I speak blessing over you today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. We're dismissed.